0: This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear my conversation with Hubertus Mulhauser, CEO of the international ag tech company, CNH Industrial. He talks about the meeting of high tech and agriculture. Exciting things are happening that not only mean more food, but better food and a better climate. Hubertus also draws on his global perspectives to comment on the pressing matters of climate change and the trade crisis with China. But before we get to all of this, here's what to expect in the week ahead. On October 30th, Wednesday, we get what everyone is awaiting for, the estimate of GDP for the third quarter. It's slowing down the U.S. economy. But how much? What's happening to business investment? Without investment, we don't get future growth. Also on that day, we get the ADP National Employment Survey. ADP is a private company, but it keeps tabs on job creation. It's a good harbinger for the federal job creation report a few days later. In addition on Wednesday, we get the petroleum report. What are the inventories? Oil prices have been under pressure. Will that pressure continue? On Thursday, we get personal income numbers and outlays. The consumer has been the mainstay for the economy. Will their incomes be there to continue lifting the economy ahead? On the previous day, Tuesday, we get something that is a mouthful. It's called the S&P Core Logic Case-Shiller Indices. That's all gobbledygook for what are happening to housing prices nationwide. On that day too, on Tuesday, we get the Consumer Confidence Index. Are consumers feeling better, worse? We'll soon find out. And on the political front, a lot is happening. Attorney General Barr, his federal prosecutor, a fellow named John Durham, investigating what led to that Russian collusion investigation has now been raised to a criminal investigation. The Democrats don't like it, but this has been in the offing for some time. Overseas, Brexit, that comedy, dark comedy continues. Boris Johnson first won a victory, but then he got upended by Parliament on the timetable of when Britain can actually remove itself from the European Union. He now wants an election in early December. Will he get it? Parliament has to approve. The opposition Labour Party really doesn't want an election because it fears it will lose it. Certain Conservatives don't want an election, even though their party would likely win, because they know that if Johnson wins that election... The rebel members of the Conservative Party are going to be in for retribution from the triumphant Boris Johnson. And then you always have the complicating factor of Northern Ireland. Those members of Parliament from Northern Ireland, the Protestants, they don't want an election. They don't like what Johnson is doing with the EU. So more drama from Britain, not just on the royal side, but in Parliament as well. On the trade front, President Trump once again is making noises that a China deal is in the offing. Well, will we finally get one, a substantive one, that can guide business, allow them to know what the rules of the road are so they can make investment? Business investment has been slowing down because businesses don't know what the environment's going to be like in terms of what the rules of the road are. Will Congress get around to approving the new NAFTA deal, what they call the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, it would pass the House of Representatives. But Speaker Nancy Pelosi continues to block a vote. She doesn't want to give any victory to Donald Trump, even though it's going to hurt the U.S. economy. Watch out if the U.S. goes after Europe by imposing tariffs, which are sales taxes on auto imports from Europe and also the import of auto parts. If the U.S. goes ahead with a tariff there, all bets are off on the U.S. economy next year Those tariffs would throw Europe into a recession, and we would feel it as well. And of course, in Israel, whose politics in this small country are probably one of the most complicated in the world, the leader of the opposition, a fellow named Benny Gantz, has been tasked with forming a government. The incumbent prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, failed to form a government after this last election. But the betting is that Benny Gantz will fail, that Netanyahu will get another chance, and it's likely that Israel will get its third election within 12 months in a few weeks ahead. So, plenty happening here and overseas. Our special guest today is Hubertus Molhauser, CEO of CNH Industrial, which is a major designer, manufacturer, and seller of agricultural equipment and commercial vehicles. It is, by the way, the second largest agricultural manufacturer on the planet. Hubertus, thank you very much for joining us. Steve, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So uh, it's a company that employs 64,000 people, 66 manufacturing plants, and 54 R&D centers in 180 countries around the world. And the reason we're having Hubertus with us today is to get insights on high technology in agriculture and construction, and also, of course, an informed view of China and trade, this man has been his extensive experience around the world, including China. Little things like GMO, Brexit, but first a little bit of background with you, Herbertus. You grew up in a manufacturing family. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I grew up um, in the middle of nowhere, in the neck of the woods of Germany, between a small town between Frankfurt and Heidelberg, and I was born into a an entrepreneurial family. Um, doing manufacturing uh, equipment and, and doing tunneling equipment. But I was the second born and, um, in Germany um, at the time's The oldest um, got the farm, and the second one had to basically see where future lies. So that basically then... Sounds like the British. Yeah, a little bit. First one
0: got the stuff, the second one had to go out and earn it on his own. Exactly.
1: No, but in all honesty, I I discussed it out with my siblings, and my older brother uh, wanted to go into the business. So I decided to learn a lot from the family business, but um, to take my future outside. And then when I was young, I joined an Arthur Little, and at the time, a very prestigious um, American consultancy, and I worked um, for many, many international companies for many, many years, and that brought me also to Switzerland. So, and today I carry also a Swiss passport next
0: to my German passport. And you speak four languages.
1: Yeah, well, I understand, and and I do speak them as well. Sometimes better, so, and sometimes so it needs a couple of hours to basically
0: get back. But it's, it's so kind of English, German, Spanish, and French, and French exactly. Yeah. Now. Uh... After uh, Arthur D. Little, you went to a company called AGCO, Agricultural Company. Tell yeah. us about that.
1: Yeah, AGCO, that was um, kind of, you know, after 12 years being a consultant, I, I felt I wanted to go back into the real world, into the Do industry things. Where, <laughs> where things really happen. And, um, and I got an offer from the, from the CEO that just was appointed CEO of AGCO Corporation. And um, yeah, and I joined him as an officer. And, um, and that was my, my first experience in the agricultural world a very global company, Um they have also uh, multi-brands. And um, so, you know, in the seven years I stayed with them, I I traveled a lot, so I was responsible for China, I was responsible for Europe, Africa, Middle East, managed their engine business at a side. That was a very interesting experience, and and that was a time where I fell in love with agricultural machinery, so to say.
0: And you uh, mentioned China. You uh, led the drive of Agco into China. Tell us so, uh about that yeah, it was an
1: interesting time I mean i in China for the family business, actually, I did internships while I was studying, so I was already in China um just after Tiananmen, early nineties so so China at that time was a very very different place. I remember that i um I was renting a bicycle and I was um, driving through the streets of Beijing early nineteens on a bicycle I think if you tried that today you you wouldn't make 2 hours and um, <laughs> not a minute even you would be rolled over by by buses and cars but at the time that was the the normal way to go about in China and um, my main concern at the time was to avoid the holes in the streets um, of Beijing. So, so that was a that was a very different experience. And then, basically, when I came back then uh, with Echo Corporation to China, of course, the country has significantly changed. Uh, it has become um, the powerhouse that it is today. Um, and um, and my objective was to localize farm machinery there because just selling farm machinery into China was um, was not going to be sustainable. So. So, when I, when I became responsible for the Chinese piece um, in early 2000, we had like 15 people in a small office in Beijing. When I left, we had more than 1,000 and um, three different manufacturing sites. So, it was quite a ride. It was a very, very interesting development. And, and I think Echo is still enjoying today um, the footprint that they have in China.
0: Where did you get your experience in Argentina, a country that could have been could have been as they say in sports could have been a contender
1: yeah well that that's a that's a second love affair of mine so to say next to agricultural equipment i really really love the country of argentina and and that love is also shared with my with my wife we love traveling there we got very, very good friends there, and um, actually, I got to know Argentina when I did a stint at university. I studied for a year at the Universidad Argentina, uh, um, Argentina um, UADE, um, so I have to basically spell it correctly. It's UADE Universidad Argentina de la Empresa, so it's like an MBA course that I that I did there. Um, and um, and while I was there, I I met a lot of very, very interesting and very, very nice uh, people. Um, you know, with some with German heritage, some with, um, and that's my very, very best friend. Um, he has a Basque history. His name is Hector Mokorea, and actually, I named my small son Hector, um, our youngest, after him. So Hector Mokorea is the godfather of our little Hector Mulhauser, and um, yeah, and I try to visit every every year there. And um, and again, I think it is a fantastic country, and it's. It's very very sad to see what what politicians have done with that country or to that country. It's a, it's a country in constant crisis, as it is right now the case. And, and who knows who's going to become president next? Um, but um, let's not go into politics
0: there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always out of date by the time uh, the end of the day, anyway. Like the currency. Uh, after Agco, you uh, did a stint with the family business again.
1: Yeah, very short. I, I came back. My, my father was a retirement agent. I kind of um, um, clarified the ownership structure, but, but my objective was not to go into the family business. It was really to um, um, install management and then to go back to the U.S. And that's what I did. So I was there merely for, for 12, 15 months, um, put in a new CEO and a new CFO and then went back into the U.S. And uh, you went in the food equipment business with a company now called Wellbuilt. Absolutely. At the time, it was called Manitowoc, uh, a company in Wisconsin from uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin. And Carl Icahn uh, was the activist that was shaking that company up at the time because Manitowoc was known as a crane maker, um, struggling crane maker, but they had a very, very valuable food service business, Manitowoc Food Service. Uh, which uh, they had just acquired a large piece, just pre-crisis two thousand and seven, they acquired the the majority of a notice, which was another major food service equipment maker. and um, yeah, and long story short, financial crisis came the you know crane business went down. There were very little synergies between food service and cranes. There are no kitchens on cranes and vice versa. <laughs> so it was a very obvious for an activist, I would say. And um then they were trying to find a CEO to spin the company off and to bring it to the stock market, which I've done then. So I joined them in two thousand and fifteen. Um jointly with the team there spun um, the more valuable food service business off, brought it separately to New York stock exchange market. um had to lever it up pretty heavily. So that was a, a very difficult spin-off, but but we succeeded. and um and I think we created a lot of value for all stakeholders, for shareholders, but also for the employees that kind of felt liberated um, to be now an independent, um, full-running, thriving um, food service business. And the business today is under new leadership after I left there after three years, and it's thriving, and it's, it's, a, it's a great company. So
0: how did you go from uh, well-built to uh, C&H?
1: Well, that was actually an easy one. I mean, I think food service was a bit bit unusual for me, coming from construction and agricultural. I always said that food is kind of along the same value chain, just a couple of more steps down. No, but 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 when when I got a call from from the headhunter that said that Sergio Macion wanted to meet me, um, and that was um, in um, early 2018, I was of course excited because I knew CNH Industrial. I um, I had the pleasure to compete against CNH Industrial at Echo for many many years, so I knew about the strength of the technologies, the products, the brands, and I was excited. So, so you're sort of coming home. It was a, a it was a coming home, absolutely. So so yeah, and and that first meeting with Sergio was 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 really impressive.
0: He was a very very impressive personality, um, say the least. Now CNH has an interesting. Uh, uh, structure it was a put together a merger
1: yeah it was it was several mergers i mean actually cna industry is probably the consolidator of the global agriculture um construction but also truck industry so so the first merger that appeared was between case you know case board mm-hmm. ih international harvester and then case was merging with new holland which was founded by Abe Zimmerman many, many years ago in, in Pennsylvania. And, um, and the Agnelli family, the Italian Fiat Agnelli family, they have bought into, into um, New Holland and then basically merged these two businesses, uh, which then consequently merged with the entire industrial business of Fiat. Um, because if you look at CNH Industrial, what CNH Industrial is today, is it's kind of the industrial piece of the Fiat Imperium. So, two very, very exciting companies, two very different companies, but two very exciting companies in itself.
0: Uh, let's talk about agriculture. We all know the importance of increasing agricultural production. Uh, in a few decades, we're going to have almost 10 billion people in the world from 7, 7.5 billion today. And even as the world grows, despite what politicians do... You have a growing middle class, so what you might call the caloric gap, caloric gap calorie gap between uh, developed and uh, developing yeah. is going to close. So that's going to mean more food production. So we'll probably need uh, in the next few decades 70 to 100% more uh, food output. And uh, what a lot of people don't realize is how high-tech ag is becoming in terms of measuring, in terms of how they do plowing, soil, and everything else. So uh, you're dived right into it. Talk about ag extend as one of the things you're doing. Yeah,
1: I mean ag extend is an interest, but before talking about ag extend just just telling you a little bit how how the farm equipment scene it has evolved into being a high-tech um, equipment mm-hmm. industry. I mean, if you look at farming today, you have kind of three different areas where we're investing. And all our investments are geared towards connecting the equipment in order to allow information flow and into automation. So we are investing into the fleets. So all our equipment is connected to make predictive preventive data and to also locate where the equipment is in the field at respective time. And then the second investment is into, we call it field, which is all about auto-guidance, auto-monitoring, automation. So if you drive today one of our combines, you can actually put a child on that combine. Everything is automated. Automated censoring and and all kinds of difficult knobs that you have to press or or, or switch, it's all done automatically today. And also the, the fact of the driving. So the combines rides on its own as the tractors do, and they are always satellite steering. And what is very interesting is the third area, which is the digitalization of the farm. We, we call it a digital agronomy. And that's really where most of the productivity gains are going to come in the future, because it is telling the farmer when to do what operation where. So it's merely taking the information from the soil, from the weather, from your irrigation, from your equipment, from your seeding companies, and then really giving that data to the to the farmer, and that is an exciting development. And um, we are investing hundreds and hundreds, if not billions of millions, into these developments. And now I come to Act Extend, um, because a lot are we doing ourselves. But there's so much innovation and change ongoing in agricultural that there are merely every week another startup are popping up. And rather than investing all our money into one startup, we kind of opened, um, so to say, an incubator for these startups. We call it AgExtend, so it has our brand, and so it's agricultural experimental technology. Um, and we allow those startups that we pre-selected to sell their ideas, their solutions, their products exclusively.
0: Com- oh, okay.
1: exclusively through our channel. And that's a very interesting thing because, I mean... This does not always have the case or the New Holland quality, but the farmers are okay with it because they know it's experimental. And while those companies are still in the early stages, we are working with them side by side. So we're doing co projects, innovate them, but we leave them untouched because we like this entrepreneurial spirits of these smaller companies. And then once these companies grow and are sustainable. Obviously, that is then the point where, where we, we can offer them and where we have a dialogue of becoming an owner into those companies. And currently, we have like half a dozen of companies um, that are selling their equipment through us. One is an, an interesting one. That's my favorite one. Um, it kills weeds with electricity. So you pump a couple of thousand volts into into electric the weeds. Pulses. It's electric pulses, rather than um, your good roundup, <laughs> your chemicals. So it's chemical-free um, um, uh, weed weed killing. Um, or it's censoring technologies. You know, Soil Explorer is one of the, the ones where... Well, you, you do weather, the, you do soil, you do, do crops we now. We do everything now. it's it's And this is rapidly growing as as these new startups are coming. And as we're very open to those startups, I mean, again, we, we don't say no to these, these startups. We look at them. Obviously, there is a little bit of a filtering process and a sensitive, <laughs> sensitivity check, whether they're really sustainable. But if we think it's a good idea and it's really a value add to our end customers, we open our channel exclusively And for these small companies, this means the world, because all of a sudden, you got access to thousands of sales points around the world. You can test your product overnight in North America, South America, Europe, or Asia. So it's a win-win, a win for us, because we're offering experimental technology to our customers, and it's a win for those companies.
0: It's very interesting, because one of the challenges of any company that gets a certain size is getting uh, suffocated by bureaucracy. Where process takes over creativity, and you feel these uh, little startups prevents you from falling into that trap.
1: Absolutely, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that we're not in that already with bureaucracy being nearly to seventy thousand people. But however, one of our core values, and I think that value is really embraced by our people, is entrepreneurship, and we literally spell it out what it means for us. It means fighting bureaucracy. You know. Um, taking calculated risks, challenging the status quo. And I think if you have that mindset as a large corporation, you will still have bureaucracy, but at least you understand. How do you
0: inculcate that culture to go beyond mere words from the top to where people actually feel it's a part of their everyday life?
1: Actually, we review ourselves. Um, so so every half year, you're going to have as a, as an employee of CNH Industrial a review where you guys basically have your, you know, most of the time, you know, KPIs that you have to follow. Those are financial or non-financial performance indicators. And then we have also a set which is called values. And there we basically judge every individual by how well it is adhering or she's adhering to the value set that we set out. And these values are, first and foremost, entrepreneurship. Then it's all about passion. Nothing goes without passion. You see that also in me. I think we you, we need to have people that love what they're doing, that go the extra mile. And passion is something that you can really you can measure it, and you can basically give a feedback on that. Um, the third one is is um, is of course teamwork, and um, and that many companies have. But but if you then basically look how an individual has worked with a team, you know we don't like prima donnas, We want to have people working alongside with teams. So that we're judging, and the fourth value we have is excellence excellence in everything we do. So these are kind of the um the so you, performance
0: do you, do you, so you create teams for
1: specific projects? Absolutely. And and those teams that we create are usually diverse. And so so and diversity goes far beyond just gender diversity. It's national diversity, language diversity, ethnicity diversity, functional diversity,
0: left brain, right brain.
1: Absolutely. And um and what you see if you assemble these diverse teams? It usually takes longer to take a decision, but those decisions that you take are usually better because they're better thought through, they're challenged from different perspectives. Plus, they are also then embedded and supported by the organization because you you basically had a lot of viewpoints on board.
0: There's been a lot of research done on teams, or more and more research, including what's an effective size. Uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon has the... uh, two pizza rule. Yeah. <laughs> that in the nighttime if you're working on a project and it takes more than two pizzas to feed the team, the team is too big.
1: Yeah. I know. He has he has very, very strict rules. Funnily enough, we're following some of them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, tell us about AgDNA, DNA, Farm Management Information Systems.
1: Yeah. AgDNA is along the lines that I said earlier on, you know, where you have the digital agronomy. Mm -hmm. It's a software company that we have just bought. And actually, we use AgDNA's software to improve our own developments. We're trying to go organic on it. And, um, and we felt that, that our own internal uh, software package that we created could, could, you know, get some updates and AgDNA is providing that acta- uh, update. And that's for us the first, first significant step into this digital agronomy space, you know, where the farmer has an open platform uh, which um, which allows him to connect different data sources to this platform that helps him in turn to make the best decisions. And just to give you a very practical example, um, how the world is changing, for example, um, in the past, if you had a, a, a hailstorm on your field, okay, You need to basically make a claim with the insurance. So you need to have an adjuster that goes out with you. You drive out to the field, you look at it, you measure it, and then you write up the report, you send it to the insurance, and then back and forth discussion. Today, if you are with CNH Industrial, you pay um, $3 per acre. You're automatically on our digital solution. Um, your fields get um, satellite scanned every day. So every evening you get a new picture from your photo from your field. Um, there is artificial intelligence inside. So the photo is automatically analyzed. You see what the damage is that is created. You press on a knot and you get a PDF with the damage um, according to the day price. Or whether it's soy or corn or whatever it is, and you just send that PDF to the insurance company, and your claim gets settled. That's the future. I mean, this kind of there's no, nobody going out in the field and looking at it. It's all automated completely. And this is just one little piece, you know, where you see how different the world is going to be tomorrow and
0: what kind of new service we're also going to sell. Mm. Um. Autonomous vehicles. You're big on that.
1: We're very big on that, and that is that is one of the um, the key trends. And what is difficult in the on-highway world, because if you're driving with 100 miles an automated car on a highway, there is an enormous amount of data that need to be processed. If you are driving with two, three, five miles per hour on a field, you might have a rabbit hopping by <laughs> or a foxy on <laughs> there, and then you can stop. So the amount of data that you have to process is significantly less, hence um automation is
0: kicking in there 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 sooner fueling these things tell us about methane gas tractors
1: yeah that's that's an interesting one as well i mean next to digital automation alternative propulsion and the move away from diesel is something that keeps us awake at night and that we're also spending a lot of money on. So today in Europe, um, it's a reality that you have a portion of diesel trucks, but you also have trucks that run on gas, um, so um, natural gas, okay? And the benefit of that is very clear. Um, It takes um, 15 to 20% of the CO2 out of the atmosphere, Um, it takes um, 90% of the NOx, N-O-X, out, and it also takes out 95% of the particulate matter, which is the reason why in Europe many diesel vehicles are not allowed into cities. And what we're doing in the off-highway world and agricultural is we're changing the natural gas to biomethane, which is the biogas that you get out of your biodigesters. And now again, if you think about biodigesters. In European farms, as well as in your North American farm, you have a lot of biodigesters that produce today biomethane, a gas, a natural gas, biomethane gas. And if you take that gas and you put it onto your tractor, you're actually becoming carbon neutral. And, and now I say something, I hope you're not at lunch. If that biomethane is produced by liquid manure, cow shit. (laughs) We have a lot of cow shit on the world, right? Bullshit, but but seriously now, cow shit. You take cow shit, you put it into methane. What you do then is, and you burn it in your tractor, you're decarbonizing the environment. You're taking 80 to 90% carbon out, which is better than any electrification. And if you now follow a little bit, I don't want to go into the emotional discussion around climate change, but if you follow in Europe right now the discussion that there should be a price for CO2, um, and if you think about that a farmer could actually use the liquid manure that he produces on the farm, um, put this in a digester and put it on a tractor and basically gets money, for the CO2 that he's taking out of the atmosphere, wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, that's for me the kind of the sense of the circular economy. And we're creating that right now. So we are we're basically displaying those tractors um, for the first time this year, also selling it this year. So, and we really think that it might be a niche in the beginning, but we really think that this is something where the future farming will go in terms of alternative propulsion, not always diesel, but to go into biogas and decarbonize the environment.
0: Several years ago, Liquefied natural gas was a, a fad in this country and sort of fizzled. Why and do you think that's just a temporary thing given what you've seen in Europe?
1: Well, I think um, the, the sentiment um, of the public opinion was very difficult, uh, different. Um, I think, and again, this is in the U.S. Unfortunately, a bit of an emotional thing. I'm, I'm more fact-based. Climate change is a reality. It's it's for me not whether you believe in it or not. It's it's a fact that we have climate changing, and I think there's also under scientists there's there's an, an understanding that we can do something to um, to not stop it, but at least to help it a little bit, and we have to reduce CO2. That's the the climate treaty from Paris, and I think there is under scientists there there is an understanding and. And so that's the reason why you have to do something against CO2 emissions. And now switching to the U.S. and answering your question. First, I think that the awareness for climate change is probably not so apparent currently in in the U.S., unfortunately. And then, secondly, there is not such a good infrastructure for LNG right now, and um, and to develop that infrastructure is a costly thing. And um, that's and given that there is no pressure, public pressure from politicians, that infrastructure has not yet been built out. Europe very difficult. People, there is a public opinion. We have to do something. There is um, policy pressure from politicians, and we have an established infrastructure. So that's the reason why it just has taken off better. In Europe, than in the U.S., but I wouldn't rule out that the U.S. would
0: also go LNG and, of course, fuel cell at a later point in time. Uh, trade: How is the trade war affecting CNH? And you've said uh, obviously goes beyond uh, your company. You've said global growth is going to take a stop if trade war if the trade war continues. So first, how does it affect you, your your company? And then, then in the more macro sense,
1: well, it does affect us obviously because I mean, input prices have increased, and um, and because of of tariffs that have been imposed, and um and and somebody got to pay for that, and that's our customers because we price for it. Either the customers pay for it, or or we basically make less money that we can invest into innovation. So tariffs are never good. Um, and secondly, um, I, I'm a free trader. I believe in trade, and um, and the wealth of um, of the recent decades is because of trade. And there are actually win win relationships. And um, Adam actually.
0: Smith taught us that transactions, each party gets something from a transaction.
1: Absolutely. And Ricardo told us about the comparative advantages that you have. You know, some stuff is is just better made in a different in a different country, and. And honestly, I, I, I must say it has, it has worked for, for all sides, um, but, um, but there is also a very clear recognition that, um, you know, the last financial crisis, 2007-2008, globalization was, uh, was seen as the, you know, the reason for, the, um, for, that, for that crisis. And, and, and it was predicted at the time already that people would become very nationalistic and patriotic. And this is unfortunately what's happening currently around the world. Uh, We think we can solve the problems in our own country and we don't have to collaborate. And and I think that is kind of not the right thing. So I really hope that we go back to a free trade policy and looking at U.S. politics right now. Again, we're in October of 2019. I really hope that um, USMCA, which is a very, very, very important trade agreement um, for Canada, the U.S. and Mexico, is going to be ratified um, by Congress. I really hope. I heard that that everything speaks now for November. That is happening soon. I hope that the current, you know, impeachment discussion is not distorting that that objective because that agreement is really needed. It's desperately needed. Um, and then the other one is of course um, China. The, the the dealing with China and um, and. You know, I I have a personal very, very very uh, clear view on that one. I mean, having been in China for many, many years now, the first time in the early 19s, I said, um, I think China has kind of um, gone too far. um, And I think China needs to be um, coming back to the table, needs to understand that there are certain rules that have to be adhered to and um, which um, which I think uh, needs to be made clear. However, the way you do that is usually in a broad coalition. So what I don't understand right now is why we're not, you know, putting our strengths together, the Western world, you know, the European allies, the North American allies, jointly with WTO and kind of discussing those um, those trade issues uh, with China rather than, than creating a um, a multi-front trade war, which is not going to benefit the U.S. And it's for sure not going to benefit the world economy. And I don't want to be too bearish, but I, I really hope that we find a conclusion. I mean, there's a little hope. I mean, there's a Chinese delegation this week in, in Washington, as you know. I, I don't think they're going to find a big conclusion because I think the um, the items are on the table are, are very severe. But I really hope that we find a resolution to that trade issue because if, if this lingers on, it's going to not only affect CNH industrial, it's going to affect um, um, all different industrial sectors. And it will, it will basically put um, the overall growth of the world um, into question. And, um, and we don't want to have a recession, a global recession. And you see already early signs right now. And the thing is, it's not only, it's not only the US. I mean, look at Brexit right now, what happens there, which is kind of, I'm, I am kind of lost track on where this conversation stands. But it's, it's a nightmare. It's really, it's really bad.
0: Intellectual property in China
1: has that been a problem for you? Yes, and I think that needs to be addressed. I think um, intellectual property theft um, is a is a big issue, and and so therefore, don't get me wrong. I think to basically force so
0: there are, there or are, kind
1: of have this China at the table and discuss various issues that are disturbing and that need to be addressed is very very needed. It's I'm I'm just questioning how we do this. And it should never be one going after so, another. It so should be a coalition. the diagnosis
0: is right, but the prescription is the prescription uh, is
1: yeah <laughs> exactly. And and you know we we had the same discussion. We had Mr. Lighthizer um, you know, coming to the business roundtable just two weeks ago in Washington, and, and and this was also addressed. It's kind of it's not that we're disagreeing that 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 you know that things have to be addressed. It's just how. It's just why you're not forming a coalition. And I think the U.S. is very strong and has great allies in the world. Use those allies. You know, let's let's not... And, yeah.
0: (laughs) No more. (laughs) uh, One final thing. Uh, Manufacturing. You mentioned you grew up in a manufacturing environment. Uh, Give us your thoughts on how the U.S. is doing in preparing students for careers in manufacturing? Well,
1: I, I think um, there is something actually to learn uh, from the Europeans. Um, specifically, more the Germanic-speaking um, mm-hmm. nations in Europe have started a very, very good dual educational system. And um, and I think that is something that, um, that um, I know that the current administration is already looking into, um, because American is a manufacturing nation as well. And I think we need to train our people and give them the right tools and skill sets. And this dual vocational system that, that that the Europeans have is creating really a career for for young students that don't have to go straight into college or university, but really to have a an education apart from a university. Um, I don't know whether you know it, you're kind of 16 years old and then you go half your time to a school. And you get prepared um, and half of your time you work for a company. You do this for three years and then you have an apprenticeship and then you have a very, very solid education in a specific trade. And with the whole automation, digitalization, more computers, more robots, manufacturing jobs these days are actually not only well paid, but they are also pretty um, intense in terms of the education needs that you have. And so they provide actually for great jobs and I think that is kind of something that the Europeans have managed very well because also um, parents understand that and it starts with the parents. You know, we just had the manufacturing day in the US where we have to convince parents that their children could have a good future in manufacturing. In Europe, that's understood in Europe, it's not like you have to send your children to university. If not, they are not worth anything. No, it's, it's, there is a credible track into the trades, into manufacturing, um, which provides most of the time better salaries and more interesting jobs than doing a kind of a, a lukewarm university study, and then you know, in the end, being a Uber driver. To be very, to be very honest, so so I think there is there is a lot to learn in terms of education. Um, and um, and I think that administration right now has a political will also to change something because we are a manufacturing nation. And I think that is be, is very important. And by the way, highly skilled laborers is needed because what happens in the automation side on agricultural equipment, the same, of course, happens across industries. And as you mentioned at the beginning, my last three years I spent in the food service industry. And, um, and there it's even more um, amazing what you see in terms of automation. I mean, if you look at latest studies, they predict that food service equipment industry and kitchens are going to be the first areas to be um, kind of automated fully. You know, you don't need to flip burgers or, or fry. This is all going to be automated. And if you see, see the amount of people working in fast food, quick serve restaurants today... And that this, in a couple of years from now, could be really completely automated. You're also creating social issues if you don't manage it. Because if those people then come to the job market, you know, they need they need to do something, you know. And not everybody is an Einstein, so not everybody needs to go to university. You need to basically educate the people in order to also manage the change in technology that is going to happen around
0: us. Well said. Your Joubertus, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And now, my Reads of the Week. The first one is entitled, Why Sell Weapons to Taiwan? Answer, because Washington's Chinese strategy won't work without it. It's written by Lauren Thompson, and you can find it on Forbes.com. The point of the article is, Taiwan's defense is essential to U.S. security in the Pacific. Interesting article, very timely one. The next one is entitled, This E-Cigarette Tax Could Be Hazardous to Your Health. It's by Adam Michelle at DailySignal.com, and it points out that the Congress is considering a tax on e-cigarettes. And for all the hullabaloo about e-cigarettes, the fact of the matter is that they're 95% safer than the real cigarettes. Nonetheless, they're getting a bad rap. And what Michelle points out is that if we put a tax on these things, all it's going to do is drive people to the real cigarettes and create a black market. Finally, a more personal one. This appeared on Forbes.com by Kristen Tablang, T-A-B-L-A-N-G, and it's called Thomas Edison, B.C. Forbes, and the Mystery of the Spirit Phone. Well, it turns out my grandfather was a good friend from time to time with Thomas Edison, and after a tiff, Thomas Edison sat down to an interview with B.C. Forbes, who founded our company 102 years ago, and he talked about his new project, a spirit phone that would let us communicate with the dead, living, communicating with the dead. Edison expounded his bizarre theory, as it turned out, and after Edison died, no one could find this mysterious spirit phone. So interesting reading. Little light, but we need that right now. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.